Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Beyond the Surface podcast. My name is Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I love finding out people's stories, people's journeys, and the lessons they learned along the way. With these podcasts, I'll dive deep to find out people's mindset, what their mindset was then and what their mindset is today, so that we can learn, so that we can learn from them and figure out how it applies to our life. So I try to bring a a wide range of performers to the podcast, everything from sports agents, athletes, musicians, actors, uh, coaches, and anyone in between. So today we bring Jason Whitlock, who is a TV host. Uh, He also has done radio, and he is really a sports journalist and has written a number of columns. And Jason, who grew up in Indianapolis, will share his story and his journey and what it was like growing up. He also will share what it was like growing up as an athlete and having that tied to his identity and how that helped shape him for better or for worse in his career. I think one of the really cool things about Jason is he has a background in elite sports. Uh, he was a Division One football player, and he talks about the ups and downs that came with that and, in some ways, some regret with how he approached being a Division One football player and his mindset and how that then led to a completely different mindset when it came to came time to perform in journalism. And I love Jason's tenacity, but I also love his energy. Uh, he is a guy who is unafraid to speak up and make himself vulnerable. And for that, I think he makes a great podcast guest. Uh, I also just appreciate Jason's open-mindedness. And he is very opinionated. So a lot of times people think that opinionated people aren't necessarily open-minded. But I think as you'll find in this podcast, Jason is open to learning. He's open to finding out new things. And Uh, improving the way that he sees the world. And he definitely doesn't claim to be a perfect human by any stretch of the imagination. So I really find that refreshing. And I think Jason, even though he is in the business of having answers, he often has more questions and answers, which is a really fascinating dichotomy. So with that, I'd like to introduce Jason Whitlock to the Beyond the Surface podcast as you go beyond the surface with yourself as well. I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, I think my parents divorced when I was four or five years old. Uh, you know, my earliest memories are me, my mom, and my brother uh, living in a small apartment in the hood in Indianapolis. Uh, I, you know, all of my memories are very happy. A very happy childhood. Uh, you know, my dad stayed involved with me and my brother. Uh, and, you know, my mother uh, was really into me and my brother. Uh, and so when, you know, after a few years where I was really young, third or fourth grade, uh, the little apartment we were living in in the hood got broken into. And, you know, my mother... Uh, took a second job and moved us uh, into a what we thought were the suburbs, what was really just a working class uh, neighborhood uh, on the east side of Indianapolis, and uh, you know it was an idyllic childhood in my mind. Uh, you know, uh, just playing a lot of sports. We, you know, there was a basketball court. We played pickup football. We played baseball. Uh, we swam indoor and outdoor pool, uh, and just, you know, I was a popular kid in my school cause I was funny and I was athletic. When you moved, was dad back in the same area that you grew up in or? 
Yeah, my well, my father remarried, and he lived in a suburb on in the north. And he moved with his new wife and uh, her two kids out north, and we moved out east. Uh, but yeah, my dad was. You know, we always saw my dad on weekends. Uh, my dad owned a bar in the inner city, and we hung out with my dad at his bar a lot when I was a kid. He would take us fishing, uh, take us to Pacer games. Uh, but, you know, mostly it was just, you know, it, primarily it was my mom and my brother and I. Uh, but, again, you know, we did spend a lot of time with my dad and his new family because I got a sister that I consider my sister. She was my stepsister. I got a stepbrother. Uh, I'm not as close with him, uh, but was like a great brother, older brother to me and my brother as a kid. Uh, What's the age difference between you and your brother? My brother's three years older than me. Uh, my sister is, I think, five years older than me. And... My stepbrother is probably seven, nine years older than me. So you're the youngest. I'm the youngest. And did they impart sports onto you? Or? No, I was. Yeah, I, my stepbrother, I think, was into athletics, but he was too small. I, he never, you know, he liked to play pickup basketball and stuff like that. And we would play pickup football and basketball, me and him. But my brother wasn't into athletics at all. Uh, His dad? No. My father wasn't either. My uncle was uh, my dad's brother, uh, but my sister not in athletics. It, it was it was just me. It was uh, you know that's I live to play sports, uh, and a lot of uh, you know my family got all into my sports career. And are you more like mom or dad? Uh, it depends. I think I'm irreverent and outspoken like my mother. I think I'm uh, contemplative and reflective like my dad. I think that, uh, you know, I, I think most people say I'm more like my mother, but there's parts of me that are like my dad. And, you know, my dad is really no bullshit. And, you know, I, I think I am, but uh, my mother was very irreverent and very fearless. Mm. Uh, but, you know, both of them, what they both had in common was just an independent spirit of, I'm going to do this. You know, my dad was someone that uh, was reading the autobiography of Malcolm X on his job. He worked at Chrysler. Of uh, car uh, factory, uh, and he was reading the autobiography of Malcolm X on his lunch break, and his supervisor and some of his coworkers gave him a hard time, mm. and he said, "Okay, I, I need my own job. I need my own business. No one can tell me what I'm gonna read on my lunch break." And so that's what he started a barber shop. Then he started. Uh, a bar in the in the inner city, so he had quit work. He wanted to be his own boss, and so my father was just someone that uh, wanted to be his own boss, wanted only to answer to him, wanted to build a little comfort zone for him to be happy, and screw everybody else. Uh, and <clears throat> you know, my mother 
was someone that just wasn't afraid of working and wasn't afraid of going. You know, when she moved us out to this working class suburb, my father was in complete objection to it because it was a primarily white neighborhood. And my father was like, man, I don't want my kids growing up around all the white people. My father, uh, you know, had very bad negative interaction with white people growing up as a kid, as a young adult, when he was in the military. Uh, and so <clears throat> he was in complete objection to where my mother moved us. But my mother was like, look, I, I'm moving him out here. It's safer, better schools. I think this is the right play for him long term. And so uh, screw you. And I, that led to a lot of uh, tension between them. Uh, and my father wasn't as supportive towards my mother probably as he should have been very supportive towards me and my brother but they clashed over child support he he prefer i got the kids i'll spend money on them i don't want to give it to you uh and i think a lot of that was about where she moved us uh but again most of that stuff is stuff that was way over my head as a kid and stuff i didn't pay attention to i was just i liked the neighborhood because there was plenty of there was basketball court. There was a place for me to play football. They had little league football across the street. Uh, I followed the high school football program very closely, even as a kid, long before I got there, because it was within walking. The high school was in walking distance, and I went to all the games. Uh, as you reflect back, what are the values that you took from each of them? Parents? Yeah. Uh, you know, for, mostly don't ask nobody to do shit for you. Do it for yourself. Uh, and, you know. Uh, Independence. Yes. And just, you know, why beg when you can go get? And, uh, you know, don't just, you know, America offers you an opportunity to cut out a little slice just for yourself that should be able to maintain your happiness if you're willing to go get it. Uh, that was definitely, you know, I, I said my dad, uh, again, he had a business in the inner city. He built a brand new home in the inner city. My dad liked being around black people. He built a bar for black people and he built his home around black people and he was good. Uh, and, uh, I, I just, and I just, for me, my, I mean, my mother just represents sacrifice. She did a lot of things for me and my brother, including working two jobs. I mean, this is a black woman in the seventies raising two boys, uh, with not the ideal level of support from her ex-husband. Uh, but you know, I just don't remember ever not having everything I needed to be happy. Take us to high school where you said you're, you're popular because you're funny, you're athletic. Uh, what was, what was that experience like for you? And, and also from a racial standpoint, just, you know, being around a lot of people that didn't look like you. Well, actually, uh, after eighth grade, Indianapolis started busing uh, 
black kids out of the inner city into the more suburban communities to go to school. And so my ninth grade year, they started busing black kids to our school. And ninth grade was still junior high in our school system. High school was 10 through 12. So my last year in junior high, uh, you know, a lot of kids that look like me got busted to my school. And it was awesome for me. The, the, you know, there were a handful of black kids already there, but now there was quite a few. Uh, and, you know, w- developed my best friend, a guy named Willie Clark, who got busted in, and a bunch of other kids. But I was the kid uh, that was in the middle, that was happy as hell that they had these new black kids coming. Uh, but still very loyal to the friends I'd had since third or fourth grade. And uh, I was the guy trying to pull everybody together, trying to get everybody to see common ground. And so when we get to high school, you know, I'm a pretty talented player, and I'm on varsity and starting as a sophomore. And, uh, you know, football, football, football. and, you know, we had a very good football program, and we ended up having a great football program by the time I was a senior. Uh, and, you know, we won our school's first state championship. I was the captain of the team. You know, part I was a very good player, but the other part was I was the guy that connected with everybody, the black players and the white players. I was the leader that everybody uh, looked up to and respected. Uh, and so... You know, it was, again, Jeff George, number one pick of the 1990 draft or 89 draft, 90 draft, uh, was our quarterback. We finished the season undefeated, I think ranked number eight or nine in the country. It was an awesome experience for me. Time out. I I have to go a little deeper there because my memory of Jeff George as an NFL player is as talented a quarterback as, as I grew up with. What was he like in high school? Uh, you know, I, I tell people he was the LeBron James of football. And, and I say that I don't know if there's ever been a high school quarterback in the last 40 years as talented as Jeff George. Uh, you know, he, he was just a blue chip, flawless, six foot four, pocket passing quarterback that everybody wanted. He's a great baseball player as well. Probably could have been a major league baseball shortstop or a pitcher. You know, could have been the number one pick in the major league baseball draft. Um, and he was a hell of a basketball player too. You know, he could he could shoot with anybody uh, in the country. Uh, he was a freaky athlete, and he was somebody that when by the time he was a seventh grader, we were all like, "Oh man, he's going to be the number one pick in the draft." Uh, and so, uh, you know, good kid, uh, sometimes, you know, I think it's a curse to be born with that much talent. Uh, you know, people treat you differently, uh, when, you know, seventh, eighth grade, you've already been identified as someone that's going to be this freakish athlete. Then people start being your friends because they want to ride your coattails or whatever. But, uh, I just remember Jeff as a great kid and uh, a great athlete. So take us from high school to college and, and your transition um, and playing football and, and how all that I, I didn't handle college football well at all. I, I didn't handle college well at all. It, it's Again, 
I'm my my dad didn't graduate high school. My mother was a factory worker. I was the first person in my immediate family to go off to college. My sister, she had gone to IU. She had put herself through IUPUI, Indianapolis University, Purdue University of Indianapolis. It's right there in Indianapolis. She did that part time for several years. My brother had gone to the Air Force. Uh, and so he did college while in the Air Force a little bit later. I was the first person in my family to go off to college. I didn't go very far. I went to Ball State, 60 miles away. But all I knew about college, and people think I'm joking when I say this, I really, what I knew was the movie Animal House. And so my mindset as a scholarship college football player, Division One, was, man, I'm going to go up here and have a great time. I'm going to get liquored up. We're going to kick it. We're going to have a toga party. It's just going to be like this movie. And it was a very immature and inappropriate mindset for college football. And, you know, I was one of their top recruits. I was coming off this great team. I was, you know, an all-state player. Uh, And I was pretty good. But I showed up out of shape. Uh, I showed up with a chip on my shoulder, like, how come I'm not playing in the Big Ten? And my first two years at Ball State football were a disaster. Uh, Me and the offensive line coach didn't get along. Uh, I I just, it just didn't work for me, and most of it was my fault. Is there regret there? Oh, a lot of regret. (laughs) A lot of regret. I think about it all the time. A lot of people will be like, oh, I live my life without regrets. And I'm oh like, no, <laughs> no, no! I, I there's probably not a week that goes by yeah. that I don't think about. Man, damn! <laughs> I could have been so good because my junior and senior year, or my third and fourth year, I was really good. My fourth year, I played with a torn ACL, and that's and started every game. And we were a very good team. Should have been undefeated, but wait, 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 time out, time out. I tore my ACL two years ago, and my knee is still not right, and I got surgery and everything. But what do you mean by play with a torn ACL? I play, you know, some people tear their ACL, it's tighter than others, and it's not a complete tear. Uh, but I tore my ACL, didn't get surgery, got a scope after the season. Uh, and, so, and, you know, after I got the scope, the doctor's like, hey, you can get it repaired. You can. Your knee's pretty tight. I haven't, I've never had it repaired. It's probably going to cost me later in life. Uh, but, uh, I, I have so many regrets. There's, well, there's a couple things I have regrets about. One's related to a girl, the other's related to football. (laughs) But as it relates to football, I wish in high school, I was the ultimate. I was all in. I was a leader. I prepared. For some reason, it just didn't click for me in college, uh, particularly the first two years. And then by that time, I had changed the relationships with my coaches so much that from the first two years that I could never dig out. Even though I was a good player and they needed me and they played me, the coaches had a hard time getting off that narrative of the guy I was the first two years. And by the time I'm a fifth-year senior, I'm kind of growing, man. I ain't going to be no pro player. Uh, I don't like these coaches. They don't like me. 
I need to get involved in my journalism career and life after football. So I didn't play my fifth year. I used the torn ACL because their doctors had lied to me or misdiagnosed my knee. And I was like, look, dude, I'm not I'm not going to play my fifth year. My knees jammed up, blah, blah, blah. And so last year I was just a student. When did journalism come into play? Uh, my second semester of my freshman year. I, I, I went to, again, I didn't know anything about really college, so I went thinking, I'm going to be an accountant. My dad had an accountant for his bar. I'll be an accountant. Uh, got in a math class and was like, well, I ain't, I'm not going to be an accountant. And a friend that uh, I went to high school with who was also at Ball State said, man, you love to read the newspaper. You love sports. You should be a sports writer. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. So my second semester, my freshman year, I switched my major to journalism. And uh, it wasn't the greatest student for four years. And then my fifth year, uh, I kind of got into it and a lot. I started writing for the student newspaper, took, took classes much more seriously. to prove everybody wrong that I was qualified for a job. And so all I did for a year was just live that job. You mentioned chip on the shoulder going into college, but you mentioned it in almost a negative way of like, I had this, maybe you thought you were the shit or this other, like. Yeah, no, I thought that I was better than a Ball State football player. I played on a team that was nationally ranked, uh, you know, I think in my entire career, I gave up one sack, uh, and it was to another very good player that ended up playing at Purdue. Uh, That's a different chip on the shoulder, because what I'm also hearing is I have this chip on the shoulder, but it's a different chip when you graduate that I'm going to put all that other nonsense behind me and and go after this. That's yeah. A different chip. I think, to be honest with you, I think that going off to college wasn't a Whitlock thing. The Whitlocks had no experience at that. Showing up to work and outworking people, we have a lot of experience at that. And uh, I, I was competitive about my career in a way that I wasn't competitive about college football. Uh, in a way that I was competitive about high school football and all that stuff, when it came to my career, I didn't. I don't want. I didn't want anyone to outwork me or to be more prepared than me. Uh, I recognized how much, how far I was behind everyone else, uh, and so I just threw myself into my job. And I, I just, I had a huge goal, uh, and that was probably the other thing that made me work hard. I wanted to be the Mike Royko of sports. Mike Royko was the person I had been reading in the newspaper for years, and I said, you know, man, I want to be the Mike Royko of sports. You know, that's damn near the columnist, reporter. columnist for the for newspapers in Chicago for 30, 40 years that won a Pulitzer Prize that was probably, you know, it's, many people would argue the greatest newspaper columnist of all time. He was syndicated in newspapers all over the country, 
presidents respected him, but he mostly he made his name writing about Chicago issues. Uh, we'll go forward, but I want to go back for a little more. When you're in high school, was there a idea of wanting to be a Big Ten D one football player? Well, hundred percent. I mean, my whole life was. But again, I didn't know how to do it. There were no athletes in my family. But that was the carrot, right? Like that was the The carrot was being in the NFL Hall of Fame. Ever since I was six years old, I probably started practicing my Hall of Fame speech. So the drive though in high school was be- we have this dream or this vision or this carrot for us. When we get to Ball State, was there a lack of a carrot for freshman and sophomore year? There was just a lot of stupidity. Yeah. I don't know if it was a lack of carrot. It was just you know, I was a blind person. I didn't know anything about college, really. I didn't know anything about – I knew th- plenty about Big Ten football. I didn't even know – when they started recruiting, I didn't know the Mid-American Conference was Division One football. Uh, and so I think there was a foolish disappointment. Uh, man, I got Ball State. This will be nothing. Lack of gratitude. Lack of gratitude, lack of respect. Uh, just stupidity, man. Uh, <laughs> there's just no other way to say it. And again, you know, look, if some of my family had been athletes or college, I, I would have had someone to talk to. Someone would have told me, like, man, no, you're going to go play with some real players. And you got it's a business. you got to take it seriously and blah, blah. And again, some of the guys I played college football, well, we had the guy a year before me went off to Michigan or whatever, but – I should have known better, but I just didn't. And I was just so happy. I'm, you know, cause there's some disappointment, but there's also just, man, I'm going to college for free. I made it. It's a destination. I'm not, it's, a, it's actually just the start of the journey. So let me just jump in. Like when I work with people, I always say people think that gratitude is linked to complacency. And I think they're like polar opposites because if we're grateful and like. That's a debt. What? Gratitude is a debt, and I pay all debts. And so, yeah, I think gratitude is is an ultimate sign of respect and an ultimate sign of like, oh, damn, I owe these people something. <laughs> and, but complacency is is the enemy of success. Like the moment you're like, I'm good, I, I'm, I'm complacent. I'm not getting better. I'm not growing. I'm not trying to improve. Uh, and I think gratitude is like, especially for athletes when they're grateful to be somewhere i think you're right they work harder whether it's you know obligation or whatever it is they're they're gonna work harder but complacency is uh uh when you're in a complacent space it's it's not good yeah i'm wondering if i don't know if if i was complacent as unappreciative would just be the word i would use and when you don't appreciate something, you take something for granted, uh, you end up living with a lot of regret. And so, uh, again, I, you know, I approach Ball State football the way I approached a relationship with someone that I should have approached with a lot more appreciation and gratitude. And uh, it would have caused me to act differently. When I got into all right, when the when the Bloomington Herald Times gave me a part time job, I was grateful because I was I had enough self awareness to know I'm not really good enough right now to get a full time job at 
the Indianapolis Star somewhere. And so I was very grateful and I was very determined. And there were some people there, Bob Hamill, the sports editor, Andy Graham, one of the sports writers there, that uh, took interest in me and recognized, like, man, this kid really wants it. And they saw my effort, so they started putting effort into me. And uh, <clears throat> that effort... They knew it was it was very selfless. They weren't, well, Whitlock will be here at the Bloomington Herald Times for 10 years. They knew, now nah, we're going to invest in this guy, and he's going to go off somewhere. Because, one, there's not going to be no full-time jobs open up here. Two, this kid's got bigger goals and aspirations than that. But they helped me tremendously. And then I got an opportunity finally at the uh, Charlotte Observer and their bureau they had in Rock Hill, South Carolina. It was a high school, covering high school sports job for $403 a week. But they made me do a two-week audition uh, before they would give me the job. And uh, I had a, I was like, okay, fine. But I, I had a little bit, of, oh, man, I got to come try out. And they had never made anybody try out. The only reason why I got the trial is they required you to write an autobiography at that time to send them an autobiography of your life. And it's the way they judged your uh, passion and blah, blah, blah. I put so much effort into the autobiography. I had fake quotes from people on the back of it and dressed it all up. I was like, I think I had like Colin Powell quoted on the back saying, you know, this gave me strength when America was in deep trouble or blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they were so impressed by that. Nothing else said I was qualified other than the the autobiography and the effort I put in. They said, all right, we'll come out here and try. For, I did the two-week two tryout. They give me the job, but the woman who gave me the job, and I'm not saying this to disparage her, but she, she gets me in there to offer me the job and tells me that uh, we're hiring you as a part of our affirmative action, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what? And she goes, well, a part of our affirmative action. I was like, no, you're hiring me because I just came out here and kicked ass for two weeks. And she was like, well, well, you're a part of our firm. And I was like, hey, if you're hiring me because I'm black, I don't want the job. I just came out here and did a two-week audition. And either it was good enough or it wasn't. So I don't need to hear about your affirmative action policy. And it shook the woman up. And again, I'm not saying this to disparage her. Uh, but it was my attitude. And it was like, either I'm good enough or I'm not. I just came out here and danced for you for two weeks. And so when I had that job, I had this human, I had a boulder on my shoulder. It's like these motherfuckers think they did me a favor. And I, you know, this will piss people off that I say things like this, but I put on a 16 month sports writing display that Michael Jordan couldn't do on the basketball court. I just destroyed. That bureau, <laughs> I never left the office. They put it in my uh, review. You have to develop a life outside of work. Uh, you're spending too much time at work. You're spending, you're too focused on work. And, you know, gave me a great review. 
because <laughs> I, I killed it. I got all these. This is a time when newspapers mattered and you're working this little bureau. I was getting stories on the front page of the main paper, all kinds of shit that had never been done out of this bureau because they, I was like, they think they're doing me a favor. They did do you a favor. I did them a favor, I'm going to be honest with you. But they did you a favor because they lit something in you to just, like, like I think so often I, I hear it with all kinds of clients who come from families that are not ideal or uh, were in environments that were not ideal. And a lot of times there are favors in there, not intentional favors, but get us to bring out our very best to just say F you. Um, That's you know, true. In that sense, they did you a favor because you had this fire come out of you to say, like, watch what I can do. Watch, like, three types of people in this world. Victims, when something bad happens, they say, why me? They go in their hole, they say, what well, is me? Survivors just say, oh, it is what it is. Like, it's all good. Like, I'm just going to keep doing my job, put my head down and keep going. And then I call them thrivers, and thrivers say, watch what I'm going to do. All right, you watch this. And you took the thriver route. And, you know, I, you could talk about athletes, actors, CEOs. The common link that I see is that when they face an obstacle, the great ones, the elite ones, the Jordans of, of the world, say, all right, watch what I'm going to do. And other people think that that's spiteful. It's, it's, it's not. It's, it's thriving. Um, and I think that's, I think that's, a, we, if we can thank those people, even though they didn't mean to be inspirational. Um, Here's where I thank them. And I, and I say this authentically, you didn't force this out of me with your comments. Cause I've said this, uh, forever. Uh, there was a guy named Bill O'Connor that was the editor. That was my editor. He was an asshole. I was a former football player. And so it was fine him being an asshole. It was great. All of his tough feedback and all that other stuff. Coach. Yes, I could completely hang. He, because I, was, I wasn't that good when I got there, but he man, just quickly turned me around and talked. Uh, uh, Ann Allen, another editor there, uh, was great. Trish Green, the woman that, you know, started me off with the chip on her. Great. Because once they saw, like, holy cow, I've never seen anybody that wants it this bad. They responded, got out of my way, because I started doing stories for other editors and other departments, and just I just went wild. Uh, and they didn't try to stop me. Uh, but that experience and that learning process got me the job that really kind of made my career. Now, they taught me how to write. When I was off and running once I left there, but I got a job covering the Fab Five at Michigan at the Ann Arbor News, uh, and that kind of put me on the map, covering, covering the Fab Five. And when I went there, I was, I was pretty confident uh, because the people in Charlotte had taught me the skills, the the writing. I already had the instincts. I had the work ethic. I understood journalism and why I was in journalism. I had all that. They taught me how to write. And why uh, were you in journalism? Uh, one because of I love reading the newspaper. 
But two, I thought, I thought and think of journalism as essential to democracy. Purpose. Yeah, and and I, I thought of journalism as, you know, my dad, my brother, my uncles, all spent time in the military. Uh, and and I was never going to be a guy to spend time in the military, but I always feel like you owe your country a debt. Why were you not ever going to be in the military? Because I'm, I'm just not good with people giving orders all the time. I'm going to do my thing. Uh, now, I will follow orders. I can be a good soldier, but just every day somebody yelling and screaming at me, uh, that kind of way. Uh. Just out of curiosity, because dad, you said, was in the military, but dad got to a point where he's reading a Malcolm X book at lunch and says, now, nah, F this, I'm out. Uh, did you ever have a conversation with dad about the military compared to that sort of mindset to say, know when to stick with something and know when to quit something? Well, I'll just say this. For my dad, the military was, you know, he, again, he didn't graduate high school. He, they were very poor. He went in the military to put Survive. food in his mouth. Yeah. Uh, and then it was a good experience. It taught him discipline. You know, we're getting, I won't get sidetracked, but I wish they'd bring the draft back because, you know, taking people out of tough situations putting them, giving them some discipline, letting them see the world, and then setting them back in their communities after two to four years with a whole different life perspective is very healthy for people, and I wish we'd bring it back. But, uh, no, you know, my I don't my dad's military experience I don't think was ideal, but I think he thought overall it was a benefit to him. Uh, I think... Before he went into the military, he may have gotten in trouble for selling marijuana or something. Uh, and so it, it, it just... It was a necessity. Yeah. So go back to Fab Five. Uh, you're in Ann Arbor. You're, I mean, for those that don't know about the Fab Five, it's one of the cooler stories of the last 30 years. Yeah. I, I th- the Fab Five were a phenomenon. They were... In college sports, they were, you know, like Johnny Manziel times 10. Uh, you know, they were one of the biggest things to hit college athletics and just become a pop culture force. Uh, you know, five freshmen that started for the University of Michigan, they were, all of them, four of them had NBA careers, three of them had long NBA careers. Uh, it was kind of revolutionary. They wore the long shorts, and people talked about what they meant to black athletes. And so it was a perfect. I covered the team, and I also got to write columns about the team. So I got to write my opinions about these young black dudes who were just three to four years older than me. They were causing all this noise around college athletics. It was a natural for me to write about them and uh, be someone that could, you know, I was a young person giving a perspective on a group of young people. How would you describe their mindset since you had a up close personal seat? Uh, I know they're different. They're different kind of cats. Yeah. Um, Generally as a team or as a unit, uh, what, what made them unique? What made them special? Well, I, I, 
they underachieve. And you gotta remember, so I covered the team, and I'm like, hey man, y'all y'all didn't put no banners up, no Big Ten banners, no national championships. Uh, they were a lot more into style than substance. I always point to the Georgetown teams and John Thompson, the Hoya pair. That was substance. They put, you know, they won shit and uh, they created something at Georgetown that still lives to this day. John Thompson's son is still running that program. John Thompson created a bunch of jobs for other black coaches. The Fab Five were were stylish. They were the Kardashians of college basketball, and that's kind of how I wrote about them. I thought they were immature, really good guys, guys you want to party with and kick it with, uh, but immature, and you know didn't really have a larger purpose. Of they kind of reminded me of myself as a college athlete, except they're far more talented. I don't think they had a larger purpose. I think there's like revisionist history that they stood for something and they were something important. They long shorts, 19. black socks, nineteen year old kid. They didn't stand for much. Yeah. So you're at Ann Arbor and then walk us through your, your uh, I've spent two years in Ann Arbor and written a bunch of columns that got attention and that's why I got a column job at the Kansas City Star when I was twenty seven years old. Do you like reporting or being a columnist more? Oh, clearly, I like being a columnist. I wanted to be Mike Royko. He's a columnist. And, you know, I get to Kansas City. And my mother had lived in Kansas City for my senior year of high school for the next 10 years. And then I got to Kansas City just as she moved back to Indianapolis. So I was familiar with Kansas City. And I thought I'd found it, you know, it had professional football, had baseball, which I really wasn't that into. But it had enough surrounding colleges, Kansas, Kansas State, Missouri, that I felt like I found the place where I could be the Mike Royko of Kansas City. Hmm. And, you know, started writing, you know, I was a columnist there and I can still remember my first column. Uh, and and <laughs> it, it, you know, I was there for 16 years. And at the end of those 16 years, if they if they had reprinted my first column, it would have read like prophecy in terms of what my relationship was with the readers there, what type of impact I would have on the town. It was all kind of prophesized in the first column that I wrote. Uh, I went there with a philosophy about what I was going to do as a columnist, uh, what type of columnist I wanted to be, and I executed that philosophy. Why did you believe that you you could do that uh, because I recognized a hole in the market in terms of of the whole sports writing industry was into smaltzy borderline bullshit narrative uh, writing and uh, the whole sports writing industry was into fairy tale writing. And Mike Royko was a very gritty, common sense, cut through the bullshit, here's what's really going on. So it wasn't just that he was the best at what he did, it was also how he went about doing it that resonated with you. Yes, and just what he represented, like he challenged authority. And I wanted to challenge authority in the way that my, and so no one, in my view, there weren't people doing what Royko did in the sports writing world. 
you know, everybody was writing these long, you know, Mitch Album was known as the greatest columnist at the time. And he, he didn't really have an opinion. He'd go to a game and try to recreate the game in a newspaper. And I'm not dissing it. He wrote well and all of that. But that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to state an opinion, hold powerful people accountable. You gotta, I grew up a Pacer fan. The Pacers sucked the whole time I'm growing up as a kid, and I'd read the newspaper, and you'd think they were winning world championships. And so the chip I had on my shoulder was like, I used to say this. I'd say it in speeches all the time around Kansas City. I, my philosophy was I work for the readers, not the players and the executives and coaches that ran the team. I said there's more readers than there are members of the Kansas City Chiefs. There's 53 guys on the Chiefs team. There's potentially a half million readers of the Kansas City Star. I'd rather please that half million than the 53. Did and you care about pleasing people? Yeah, the readers. Yeah, I wanted to entertain them and tell them stuff they didn't know. And, uh, you know, I wanted to hold accountable the people that they were counting on to build them a great team. And so, yeah, I thought about the readers constantly. Uh, you know, as it related to the players, and I didn't, re- I really didn't care. And some of that was particularly early on, youthful arrogance. I was a big dude. I was young. I was kind of fearless, you know, in a stupid way. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, pissing off athletes or whatever like that, that, that wasn't a big deal to me. So you establish yourself in Kansas City in that market. And you also do some radio. Did you start doing radio? Yeah, I I think I was there four or five years, and then I hopped into doing a, a radio show. Did radio there, I think, for six years. Did some local TV. Uh, can you can you like paint the picture of like to me like journalism writing? Yes, you're going to be opinionated, but you're going to be able to sit with it and contemplate, like you said, like your dad would have that ability to contemplate and write the article that you want to write, and you've got editors and a process, versus radio where firing off of the hip. What was that push-pull like for you? Well, uh, that's an interesting question. It's a very good question. It's Every discipline requires something different. And so... Uh, I, I, you know, I had a philosophy as a columnist and what kind of journalist I wanted to be. You know, I wanted to break some news. I wanted to be someone that uh, coaches would respect even when they disagreed with me. And I think I pulled that off. And then when I went to radio, you know, some of that philosophy carried over with me, but you just, this is about being entertaining. This is about making sure we're laughing and there's a smile on your face. And uh, it, it's not as journalistically sound, but you don't have to abandon journalism. You still got to remember, I'm on the radio. I got to be a columnist in the Kansas City Star. And so... Uh, what you say matters because it's still... Connected. Brand is too strong of a word, but it's... it's no, voice. brand is the right word. Yeah, I still got to be respectful of my brand as a journalist. And and so, uh, but again, my columns 
the biggest difference there with my columns is uh, I talk, I wrote about race more in my columns than I talked about it on radio. A newspaper is very serious, and journalism is very serious. And so, you know, some of my more serious thoughts I would write about. Radio is about putting a smile on people's face. And it's not, I wasn't trying to be uh, some racial provocateur on radio. Uh, I was trying to be someone that everybody listening would want to have a beer with. You know, I, I think about this really with pretty good clarity, which is when we're fulfilled in our career, there's a combination of passion and purpose. And for you, there's a passion with sports. There's a passion with having an opinion. There's a passion. But the way you talk about writing and there's purpose to that and being a conduit to representing democracy or however you look at that, there's there's true purpose in, in, in writing and journalism. Um, so I, I could understand how there is passion in the radio and the ability to convey a message and have conversation, but there's also tremendous purpose in the responsibility that comes with pen to paper um, in your career. Well, I, I'll say it perhaps differently you, or maybe I won't even be talking about what you're talking about, but what I've always said is that writing is the most powerful form of communication. If it were not, God would have put the Bible out on DVD. Uh, and so, you know, writing has an impact and power that verbal communication just doesn't have. And so, again, I take the writing thing more seriously. When you hop on radio or TV, again, people are inviting you into their cars, into their home, and they want to feel good in their home and in their car. And they don't want to have every thought they had challenged. They don't want to sit down, oh, my God, we're like, this made me, and they just... By the way, there can be purpose in that, too, right? Like, 100%. I, I, 100%. Like laughing. Yes. Uh, entertainment, like, there is a massive... And the thing can work hand in hand in terms of, oh, man, this dude is so cool. I love him on the radio. And it can open you up to the more serious side of me on the writing. I like this person. He's the guy I drive home to work, yeah. listen to, that I laugh with, blah, blah, blah. But then he also has some serious thoughts and so, again, I, I just see them it's, it's two different disciplines. you got to be respectful of that. You can't be the same guy in every medium. Were you a, were you a perfectionist when it came to writing? Were you, were you neurotic? Were you? I'm a perfectionist in terms of ideas and thoughts. Mm. And, uh, and I'm a perfectionist in terms I try to be per perfect in fairness. Uh, I, but in terms of, I wanted a very conversational writing style. I, I'm not, I try not to be someone you have to have a thesaurus or a dictionary to, uh, get what I'm writing in paper. And I was, look, Mike Royko tried to write just as he spoke. And that's how I was with writing. There are other people that do other that, that you know that was very in vogue when I was 
in the newspaper industry. It was about the f- most flowery, smaltzy, purple writing you could do. Uh, why, you know, why besides Royko was that important to you? Because again, I was trying to say something, and I was I'm trying to my roots. My again, my mother's a factory worker, factory union worker. My bro, dad owned a bar for working class black people. Uh, I'm trying to communicate with Middle America. I'm trying because that's authentic to you. Authentic to me, and I think that's who most people are. Reaching uh, the most people that you could. Yes. And but most people are about common sense. The media is about bullshit. Most people are about common sense. How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to get my kids to school? Get them to football practice, and hopefully my spouse uh, may give me some tonight or be nice to me tonight. That's what most people think about day to day. You know, and so you know all this elitist bullshit that that's not what most people are on. So take me from Kansas City to the next stop in your career. Uh, from Kansas City, I moved out here in 2010. I moved to Los Angeles and took a full-time job with FoxSports.com writing and podcasting uh, I did that for three years, and that's when ESPN brought me back or brought me over to help them launch the Undefeated website. I did that from out here in Los Angeles for two years, and uh, you know that that was wrapped in a lot of controversy. Uh, that was an interesting experience, and then last year, or it's been longer than that, eighteen months ago. I came back to Fox Sports to do, you know, a television show. Can we talk about TV? Because we've hit on radio, we've hit on uh, newspaper. Yeah. Uh, what's TV like? Most people don't even go on TV. <laughs> so, uh, what's your perspective on TV? Um, how is TV different for you than maybe radio was, uh, and, and certainly than the newspaper was? And and just give me some some of your perspective on TV. Uh, TV is the most team-oriented thing I've done. You know, the newspaper deal, writing, that's a lonely one-man job. Radio, there's a couple people involved, or you're the solo host and there's producers. You know, that's kind of a, you know, you generate, you do most everything. TV is about a group of people. Uh, now, you know, the people on air, uh, clearly, uh, perhaps have the most impact perhaps, but you can't do TV without a full team of people supporting you and a full team of people, uh, supporting you at a very high level. Uh, and so it's... You know, in newspaper and radio, your teammates matter a lot less. Uh, here, you know, the thing I've learned about this experience here at Fox Sports, man, if you can make the wardrobe people, the makeup people, the camera people, your producers, 
if you can make them feel valuable and a major part of the process, it's going to make your job so much easier. Uh, and, it, and you know, your offensive line. Yes. <laughs> and, and your defensive line and damn near everything else. Uh, and so that's one of the biggest differences uh, to, you know, clear how you present yourself on TV. Uh, because, again, TV is about an invitation into someone's home. Their, you know, their TV's inside their home. You're inside their home talking to them. And you have to be a likable person. You have to be, again, someone they realize, like, man, I would have that dude over for dinner. And, uh, man, I'd love to have a two- or three-hour conversation with that person. And so uh, I, I think... TV is always best done with a smile on your face. Uh, TV's always best done with people that you authentically like being on TV with. Because if you don't, it'll show up. Uh, Is TV the closest you've come in your journalism career to playing a sport? Uh, Clearly playing a team sport, absolutely. Uh, That's not a bad analogy. Uh, I, I I do apply a lot of the things I learned uh, in sports and to, you know i make sure i've had everybody here to my house for team events uh or my apartment uh you know i buy lunch for the team all the time keep uh morale high i try to go out of my way to uh let people know when they're doing a good job how about your mindset when the lights are on and the cameras are rolling compared to your mindset junior and senior year when you know you have a job to do and going out and competing. Is there any correlation or similarities there? Uh, I, I'll say I'm, I, don't, I think I'm dodging your question or not answering it. I, when the lights are on on TV, the number one thing you got to remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. And if your energy is low and not uh, something people want to be around, they're going to turn the channel real quick. And so most people see me on TV that know me and go, oh, man, Jason Whitlock, man, he's a dude that talks real slow and is laid back and takes his, you know, sometimes mumbles. And the guy on TV is like, hey, Brian Lovis is here. Oh, man, this is awesome. Man, the Chiefs yesterday were horrible, Brian. But I really think they have a chance to win the Super Bowl. That, and again, that I am that person. It's not fake. I can be, but 
most of the time, you know, I'm this dude. So this is where I'm jumping in. I think it's exactly like an athlete. Because athletes don't feel good every day. Athletes don't always have great thoughts. They might have some personal stuff going on. They might be pissed at a teammate. They're, they're human. But the great athletes understand there's no such thing as a consistent athlete, but I can bring a consistent mindset and approach every single day. Jerry West is probably the best at this. This guy battled depression. You know, he always said, you know, if, if you are only going to play well when you feel good, then you're not going to really <laughs> have a good career. And, like, I think the greats at everything, whether it's a CEO or a TV personality or an athlete, they understand that they need to play well even when they don't feel good. They need to bring it even when they don't feel like bringing it or their thoughts are like, I'd rather be somewhere else right now. They can shift from thoughts and feelings to action. And I think uh, a lot of our society has been obsessed with, no, that's your thought. Like, okay, go into a corner or you don't feel good. Like, you know what? And I'm not suggesting that you don't go get help when you don't feel good or you have bad thoughts. Certainly you do that. There's also something to be said for when we don't have great thoughts or don't have great feelings, still figuring out a way to have great actions. And I think that's what great athletes do is they say, whether it's Isaiah Thomas with a sprained ankle or Michael Jordan with the flu, uh, and I can go on and on, uh, Brett Favre after his father passes away, Torrey Smith after his brother's murdered, uh, a lot of times there are great opportunities when we don't feel our best or we don't have uh, thoughts that are useful but the ability to come on when the lights are on and say, you know what, I'm compartmentalizing that, I'm showing up, and I'm going to compete and do my job the best that I can do it, that to me resonates. And um, I think it's, it's a TV personality, an athlete, an actor. They understand that a business person, a salesperson, I was in sales for three years. There were times where, I didn't feel like going and making a sales call, but you better believe it doesn't matter what I'm feeling. It matters if I'm going to compete and try to find a way. So. It's it's funny you, you say that because I think if you talk to Cal Libby, our showrunner, uh, they would argue, because during the football season, I like to go to Vegas on the weekends. I like to bet games. And, you know, it's not that I'm some big partier in Vegas because I'm not. But I... Uh, tend to come back from Vegas on Sundays after all the games are done, including Sunday night football. And so Sunday nights, I six times during the season, seven times, I drove back starting around midnight, 1 a.m. And I'd listen to the radio, and I'd get back here about 5 a.m., and uh, there would be a conference call at 7 a.m. to start talking about the show. That would go on for an hour and a half, two hours. And uh, we'd map out the show by 9, and then the show tapes at 1. I show up at 11, 11.30. And initially, everybody would be all worried, oh, my God, Whitlock's exhausted. And then they figured out, I was like, holy shit, every time he comes back, from from Vegas, he gives his best performance, and it's I'm more focused, and I'm like, oh man, I'm not completely on my game, so I better not make one fucking mistake, and I better be all in 
And then they, but literally halfway through the season, it's like, man, you need to go to Vegas, come back on Mondays, and give us that great show. And I have two thoughts to jump in. Golfers call it sick golf. So a lot of golfers, I work with a lot of golfers, they'll play their best rounds when they're sick because they're no longer worried about what their score is going to be. Or they're like, oh, I'm not 100%. I'm just going to go play golf. And all of a sudden, they're not so results-oriented, and they're actually just playing the game the way the game was supposed to be played. Um, and the second piece is like, look, sleep is valuable. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that you should try to get yourself to feel good. You should try to get yourself to have good thoughts. Like, you should do everything in your power to be healthy physically. I value all of those things. But to say that you need a prescription for eight hours of sleep a night, and that needs to be there every single night, is inaccurate. Because for some people, they might function on four hours and be at their best on four hours. Others are 10 hours. And the way science works, especially... Um, you know, this psychological science, but also physical science, like ACL is a really good example. Maybe you will be screwed in, a, in 20 years because you're ACL. Maybe not. I had ACL surgery because I was 30 something. They said, you're pretty healthy. We're going to do the patella tendon. Well, what they didn't say is you're also one of the least flexible 30 year olds we've ever <laughs> met. You can't touch your toes. Uh, your hamstrings are tight all the time. And my knee is giving me hell. And I can't play basketball anymore. I can't run anymore. And so the way science works is it's percentages, it's averages. And it's saying, well, on average, you need eight hours a night. But some of the most brilliant people that have ever existed on this planet function on five hours of sleep. Others maybe 10 or 12. But I think, I think it's an important piece because we tend to generalize what people need based on the general population. Yep. And we lose track of individuals. And so for you, I don't think there's a recipe for success to say go to Vegas every Sunday night. <laughs> but there is a recipe for you to say when I step in at 11 o'clock, I'm here. I'm present. Whether I have a full night's sleep or not a night's sleep, it doesn't matter. And I know because the last couple of nights I haven't slept well. But I've done some awesome work the last couple of days and I'm a sleeper. I need sleep, man. I'm, you do that study – Give me eight to 10 hours and I'm good. But that doesn't mean that just because I got five hours last night that I can't still kick ass. And I think sometimes we use that as an excuse to not kick ass all the time. And when I work with elite athletes, the best of the best, and I talk to elite people, they say, all right, I just need to be hyper-focused now. Uh, you know, I have this adversity. All right, I need to find a way. The Charlotte people are telling me, oh, you're here because of this? All right, I need to find a way to say F you, and here's what I'm going to do. So to me, it's all about reaction. It's all about how am I, am I going to react to this or am I going to respond to this? And if I react, it's just based on feelings and emotions and thoughts. If I respond, I'm going to find a solution. And the more we can be responsive rather than reactive, the more successful we'll be. And that's just my own like little philosophical belief system. I'll never sleep again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah now I'm going to be the guy that says, no, I don't sleep. Don't take care of yourself. Um, all right. So I just want to conclude with getting your thoughts on athletes. You have had an up close seat. Uh, you've interacted with some of the most um, successful athletes at every level and in, in a lot of different sports. Can you talk about or, or provide stories to some of those athletes and how they see the world and their mindset? I'm going to 
give uh, a negative answer. That, that, but I just think it's an original. Maybe it's not an original idea, but it's an idea that's not expressed very often. One of the, one of the biggest things I think we have going on with athletes now, because they make so much money, and that kind of wealth uh, for young people or old people uh, can play tricks on your mind and make you think that you've done all the right things. Well, how else would I? Why else would I have a hundred million dollar contract if I hadn't done all the right things? And it, it just—it's the enemy of self-awareness. And so uh, I, I see so many athletes that, well, I'm in the NBA or I'm in the NFL and I'm making X number of dollars and everyone loves me. That means everything that I did along the way was the right thing. It'll fool you. And oftentimes it's not. That's not the case. Profess- I just explained to uh, an athlete this week that high school sports is kind of the last place where it's all about hard work and attitude and doing all the right things, where that separates the good from the great, the great from the exceptional to the, to the horrible. I go, once you go to college athletics, Division I, it's about genetics. And once you get to the pros, it's almost completely determined by genetics. If you don't win the genetics lottery, you probably can't play in the NBA. And Brian, you could outwork Greg Monroe or uh, Clay Thompson or uh, Kevin Durant. But you ain't seven foot like Kevin Durant. And so you may work harder at basketball than Kevin Durant, but you weren't born seven foot. And so I I, I sometimes, and I say this respectfully to LeBron James, because I really admire the work he's doing in Akron and trying to help kids. But sometimes I hear him represent himself as, uh, oh, my God, I made it out of Akron. And I wasn't supposed to, and I'm this unbelievable story. Well, if he went to his zip code or in his surrounding zip codes and did a study on all the kids that are six foot eight or six foot nine, how many of them made it out of Akron or made it out of that situation? Because the, the, the numbers are incredible. I think if. If you're over 6'10", like 17% play in the NBA or something like that. or uh, So, I mean, LeBron was born with some athletic gifts that the overwhelming majority of people born in his zip code were not. And so he had a lot of help getting out of Akron and getting to where he is. And that's not to knock him or his struggle, but it's, it's really to try to create some self-awareness that when you're born with those kind of gifts, you don't have to do as many things the right way as the people that weren't born with those gifts. And uh, so I wish it would give the athletes some humility and some self-awareness that just because you got a bunch of money and in the NBA, 
doesn't mean you've done everything right, doesn't mean you have all the solutions. And just because the media is turning to you and putting a microphone in your face, and what should we do about police violence, blah, blah, just because you make a million, two million, ten million, twenty million dollars in play, doesn't mean you know a damn thing about what America should do about police violence. And it's okay to say, hey, you know what? I'll pass on that. That's not, that's not my lane. I'm not all-knowing. I haven't done everything. Let me just master my little world. And so if Colin Kaepernick somehow listens to this deal, you know, I think he's way out over his skis. And his intentions may be good, but he's way out over his skis. He's delusional. Uh, you know, that, well, I got this platform, and I got to use this platform to make a statement. Maybe you don't, man. Maybe you can do something else. And so, I, you know, that's, and trust me, I'm a former athlete. I'm a Division One athlete. I wasn't born with the most amount of gifts, but I was born with enough gifts to play Division One football. I know guys in high school that did more things right than me and worked harder than me. They weren't, you know, I could roll out of bed and bench press 400 pounds. That wasn't because I didn't outwork everybody in the gym. There's some genetics working there. Let me jump in. So two thoughts. One, I love that you brought up self-awareness. I'm very fortunate. I get to work with high school kids, college kids, pro kids. High school kids lack self-awareness. Um, you know, you even go back to your high school experience. You're like, I played football because I was good at it and show up. And high school kids, like, when I work with them, they just aren't thinking that much about things. They're just like, oh, I'm good at this. I show up. I play. And it's fun. And you know, there isn't the whole self-awareness. Uh, and I honestly think a lot of it is because they go to school, they go to practice where the coach tells them what they need to do. They go to school, teacher tells them what to do. Then they go to practice, coach tells them what to do. Then they go home, parents tell them what to do. There's not a whole lot of time for self-actualization. All good. No beef on my part. College, and for you, like your story resonates because freshman and sophomore year, you did have self-awareness. It might not have been good self-awareness, but you start to develop your own choices, your own path, and there's negatives that come with self-awareness. There are negatives that come with self-actualization. I work with college kids. They're my favorite audience to work with because they're developing their own thought process on how they see the world, and they're not fixed to your point where a lot of pro athletes are like, this got me here. Why would I change my path at all and I think a lot of pro athletes to your point I agree like they're like this is what's worked for me why would I change it it's I'm successful so college kids really have this self-awareness that at least in my experience is not available in high school because they haven't developed yet and at college they're set uh sorry in pro they're set um so I love self-awareness because I can't do my job with people that aren't self-aware I can't and I've been fortunate to work with pro athletes. you got a small group of people you can work with. Yeah, well, <laughs> Self-awareness is in short supply. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, I would take – so I agree. I wasn't going to be a football player. It wasn't in my DNA. It wasn't in my genetic code. Um, I also wasn't going to wake up at 7 a.m. for two-a-days when all my boys were. But that's a story for another day. But no, it's not in my DNA. I'm not built like LeBron. Uh, so I agree with you. I think we um, romanticize 
you can do whatever you want and be whoever you want. I, I think that's a fallacy, and I think we romanticize that. But I do believe that once you, once you have certain talents, there are things that can make you go from good to great, or there are things that can go from great to elite. Uh, like I look at a Michael Beasley, who when Michael Beasley was coming out, I had scout, NBA scouts tell me this is the best this is the most talented prospect we have ever scouted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Michael Beasley came out at the same time as Russell Westbrook. And Russ was not that highly recruited. That's not to say you have to be a pretty good basketball player to end up at UCLA playing ball. Uh, so I'm not going to sit here and say he didn't have talent. He has talent. But I think the, the way Russ has approached basketball and the way Bees has approached basketball are, are very divergent. And that Russ came from a good family. Beasley came from chaos. Yeah, environment. That all matters. It all goes into the pot of success, right? And we put buckets. Like nutrition is a bucket. Uh, psychology is a bucket. Uh, physical gifts are a bucket. Skills are a bucket. And to me, it's just will you fill all those buckets to be the best that you can be? And that to me is what this podcast is about. How do you fulfill potential? How do you get yourself mentally ready to perform. And that's not to say I could ever be an NBA basketball player. I don't care. I dreamt it. I was John Stockton, you know, on my court at home, and my buddy was Carl Malone, and neither of us were playing college ball. So, like, I'm not the guy who says you can be whatever you want to be in this world. I think it's really important to figure out what are your strengths, what do you have some talent for, and then what is the mindset that you can use to be successful And I think that's where you can look at a guy like Russ and say, when he steps on the floor, you're not going to find a guy that's going to work his work rate in a game. I can relate to that. And I can say, all right, maybe I can have a work rate like Russ. I'm never going to run like Russ. I'm never going to dunk like Russ. That's, that's important. Maybe I can have the um, humility of a Tim Duncan and, and impact influence that into my world. Maybe I can have the competitive spirit of a Kobe. And that's not to say that any of those people are perfect, but I do think there's value in taking from people like you and saying, what's your journey? What are some things that resonate with me? Not to say I'm going to walk in your shoes and follow your footsteps, but what are the things that I can relate to and say, you know what? That's logical to me. And I think that will help me be better at what I do. And so that's why I love having these conversations because I think whether it's conscious or subconscious, when we listen to that and that helps shape us, no, we're all selfish. Like our world, I always say like the person that works at a soup kitchen is selfish because she feels something good about herself by providing food to somebody and that's how it makes her feel. It's not about the person across from us. Our world is all about the lens from which we see it and who you are today is a compilation of everything that you've experienced and seen, whether it's your mom, your dad, your step-siblings, your brother, uh, your coaches, uh, Jeff George. I mean, it's all these different pieces that create who you are. So we're none of us are truly authentic or original. It's all taking and making sense of what we see in this world. So um, that to me is fascinating, but I think you're right in the sense of we have to be careful with our message in saying – to people, follow what worked for me because it worked for me and it'll work for you because we don't know where they came from. We don't know their family dynamic. 
we don't know what's in their mind and what's in their soul. And I think that's, to me, uh, a fascinating thing. Um, so I want to end with this. Uh, I know you, you have a show on Fox Sports, but uh, if people want to find you on social media or, or, or get to know you better, where can they do that? And uh, why don't you just share that? Well, uh, you can find me on Twitter at WhitlockJason. Uh, but, you know, remember my philosophy is judge my columns, enjoy my tweets. So don't take what I tweet out that seriously. And then you can, of course, find me on FS1 on the TV show Speak for Yourself Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern. Love it. I love how you gave that. You just gave that extra oomph that you talked about <laughs> earlier. I was like, yeah, I'm feeling that. Oh, there it is. It's back. And I think that's performing. Um, and I, I truly believe the mindset for performance is a choice. And I think too often we say, oh, well, that's not me. Like, you know, I'm a cool cat or I'm laid back. It's like, dude, when you step on a floor for a game or a field or a golf course or a tennis court, no, you get to choose who you want to be for that time. And uh, you don't have to be the same person that you are off the court or off the field. Uh, And I know you said, you know, I'm very similar to the personality that I am on air. That, That may work for you. No, 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 I said I'm not similar. You're not similar. <laughs> yeah, like, we get to choose who we want to be when we're performing. Uh, and I think that's that's really valuable. So, Jason, uh, we talked for a while, so I just appreciate you giving me the time. And I know I, I honestly enjoy the conversation without a microphone just as much as with the microphone. So, Brian, I'm glad you have me. It's been great knowing you and your dad. Uh, I'm honored to be on your podcast. Jason, it was truly an honor to chat with you today as well. And I just want to summarize our conversation a little bit. So there are a bunch of takeaways for me, one being an understanding of Jason's background and how he got to be to where he is today, and understanding that there was certain adversity that he faced growing up, and I thought it was Interesting to just hear sort of the optimism in Jason from his parents' divorce, from taking the good from both his mom and his dad and the qualities that he liked about each of them and and how he tried to instill that into himself. The honesty and looking back with regret from his first two years playing football at, at Ball State and how he would have done things differently, but also learning from that experience and having a realization that he's not gonna be like that anymore. At a young age, uh, just graduating from college is is an impressive feat. Uh, I also loved the story about him going to Charlotte and being told that he was being hired for reasons other than his own competency and him taking that and having a sort of thriver, watch this mindset to show them what he was able to do. And a common thread started to take place in Jason's life where he didn't want to be mediocre and he didn't want to just be average, but he really strived to become great at his craft and wanted to be the best in the business and had role models that he looked up to and wanted to be like them. And I think that's so valuable for all of us. I also liked his approach and how he compartmentalized the columns that he would write compared to the entertainment of sports talk radio and the notion that passion and purpose can be combined into a career. And I think that was a really interesting conversation that we had where having passion may not be enough to sustain a career and having purpose may not be enough to give us what we're really trying to do. And 
I think from a young age, you could hear Jason realizing that his strengths were in connecting with people, being popular, being able to communicate, and being able to use his voice. And he has gone toward that in his career. I also loved hearing him talk about the differences between writing and radio and TV and how he has to bring a different level of energy every time he steps in front of that camera to make sure that he's connecting with the audience and how powerful that microphone is for him in his career. So there's just so many great takeaways. Uh, Jason had to deal with some adversity. Uh, He talked about his mindset and how when you're performing, you need a certain type of mindset and you need to be consistent with that mindset. He talked about the journey and the bumps along the way and, and not always making the best decisions in his life, but learning from them. And he talked about his desire and his drive and, and how his work ethic has helped him get to where he is, but also just being good at something and understanding that you've got skill or you've got talent and it's your job to cultivate that skill and cultivate that talent. So a lot to chew on here and I hope you enjoyed the conversation and can relate it back to whatever you're doing Uh, from a performance standpoint in your life as you continue to go beyond the surface with yourself as well. So once again, thank you so much to Jason. Certainly give him a follow on Twitter. He's always entertaining, always uh, putting out unique perspectives there. And also watch the show on Fox Sports. If you haven't caught that show, uh, they really do a great job. And uh, it's an interesting show because they bring in some really interesting people. And they're not afraid to talk about race. They're not afraid to talk about social issues uh, while also blending in the concepts of sports and how sports relate back to our society. So thanks again to Jason. Truly appreciate it. And I appreciate all of you listening. If you like this podcast, feel free to share it on social media. Uh, Let's try to get the word out on this. I'm really enjoying putting the time in and and learning about this podcast. And I appreciate anyone who is giving it a listen. And as always, appreciate you guys texting me or emailing me with feedback. So feel free to reach out anytime. So thank you all for listening to this episode of Beyond the Service with Jason Whitlock.